Hi, welcome to Sidewalk Talk. I'm Steve Fortunato. We use this platform to tell stories, stories of inspiration, information, uh, and education. Uh, today's story is one of, it's a sad story, yet at the same time, it's, it's an inspiring story. Um, and well, uh, let's just get right to it. Uh, our, our, our guest on, on Sidewalk Talk today is, is Lang Ung. Lang, thanks for joining us. Thanks for giving us the time. And, and I know in the preview, when we talked earlier, um, your story, I appreciate your willingness to tell the story, your story and your parents' story. So thanks for being here. I appreciate it, Steve. Thanks for having me. Sure. As I said, you're, you're, the story is sad. It, it, and it's not just your story. It's the story of millions of people uh, in Cambodia. I, uh, I, I advise anybody to watch a movie uh, it was made in 1984 called The Killing Fields. And uh, it's the story, the scape of um, Dirth, I think it's Dirth Pran or Pran, right? Dirth Pran, yeah. Um, and it, it is, uh, it's not conceivable what happened in Cambodia. And maybe we can, we can talk a little bit about the situation. I know for your parents, uh, your mom, Deanie, there's an article in the Buffalo News back in, in 1988. And it shows a picture of your mother at a wedding. You weren't born yet. Mm -hmm. And um, there's 13 people in that picture. 12 of them were murdered. She's the only one that survived. And it, it is what happened in Cambodia. It's, it's almost, I mean, I don't know how many millions of people were just, were just slaughtered. I think it was a quote from your father, uh, Lang, in, in this article, he said, they just used to, to kill people like they were mosquitoes. So set the tone for us. Um, you were born in Cambodia, mm -hmm. came over when your parents were one of the fortunate ones to escape, and, and, and they eventually ended up in, in Buffalo, New York, where you are now. Uh, but set, set the stage for us, what was going on in, in Cambodia in the 70s? So Cambodia's story is, is one that I think um, you know, happens over and over, as if you will, from history. Um, small country, uh, you know, very much dependent on, you know, very uh, basic products for their, for their economy to function. Um, and Cambodia is trying at the time to, to avoid what was escalating uh, in, the, in the countries to next door uh, in Vietnam. So the, uh, the Vietnam conflict is, is occurring um, and it's starting to destabilize the region. And Cambodia, knowing that they don't have the political capital or, or military or, or economic ability to, to really be a power player, they're trying to, stay, uh, trying to stay neutral in all of it. And what ends up happening, though, is that the North Vietnamese um, during the Vietnam conflict uh, are, are taking advantage of this situation, crossing into Cambodia, uh, taking sanctuary there, then crossing over into the south conducting attacks on the United States, um, you know, military that is there, as well as the South Vietnamese. And it's, it's continuing to escalate, um, you know, as the war isn't going well, uh, things are just getting, you know, uh, more, more dire by the day. And uh, sort of infamously uh, is, is the, was the time that uh, President Nixon uh, and his staff ordered uh, B-52 bombings of some uh, suspected North Vietnamese uh, sanctuaries in Cambodia. Um, they dropped uh, what was estimated to be, you know, more than than the payloads that were dropped in all of World War II was dropped on Cambodia from the B-52 carpet bombings, um, you know, which is, of course, decimating the, the Cambodian countryside, which is now the ripple effect is you're, you're getting people to, to really, you know, feel like they need to join the, this movement, which um, is started by the Cambodian communist group, the Khmer Rouge. And, um, and that's that, what starts. That was a bad group. That, yes. that, that, that's, that's the group that really, it, it was almost, what was that? What was the guy's name? The, the original the, um, Paul the leader. Pot. What's yeah. his name? Paul, Paul Pot. He's the, uh, he's sort of that, that mastermind, if you will, behind the Khmer Rouge movement. And, you know, he's, he's gathering uh, disenfranchised people from the countryside, um, 
you know, to, to start this revolution. Um, you know, rev the revolution is intended to, you know, overturn the, you know, the corruptness of the, of, of what they, you know, would characterize as, you know, the elites, um, you know, those that were educated, wealthy, et cetera, um, which is, again, as I said before, sort of history repeating itself and as, as we've seen in most, uh, you know, most revolutions. Yeah, so, and, and what I learned from, from The Killing Fields, the movie, if you were, if you were educated uh, and they found out, your life was, you were done. They just yeah. killed people. Yeah, they, they, you know, they would go after, you know, when they took over, they, they would try to find out, okay, you know, was your family linked to the military, um, police, uh, educated? I mean, it got to the point, there were, you know, a lot of anecdotal um, quotes from, from people over the years, um, you know, saying that, that, you know, the Khmer Rouge would, would execute people who wore glasses because it was this thought that, you know, oh, you're, you wear glasses, you must be educated or you must be, you know, an, an intellectual. Um, so it was really a, a very twisted, you know, um, human experiment really uh, of what they could, what they could do and how they could kind of change things to however they saw fit and, and control because it got to a point well why don't you just leave if if there was any hint that someone was going to leave you could count on your entire family being dead right yeah so that kept correct. that kept people in place you know your poor mother she lost all her brothers and sisters like there were six mm -hmm. of them um, mm -hmm. mom dad everybody including little kids were, right. were just were just murdered how did your mom manage to stay alive i know she your mom came from a, a very state wealthy family i mean it was great same with your yeah. dad right your dad mm -hmm. had a successful business had a family business mm -hmm. so both your parents um had had a great wonderful life they went from that to being li literally slaves but how mm -hmm. how tell us your how your mom made it through so really um you know, based on what my parents had, had told me, I mean, it was really a, a, the art of deception. It's, it's really the, was the name of the game. Um, because if they found out who you were, uh, of course they, you know, you would be executed. And, and at the time, you know, when things were at sort of at its, at its height of, of, uh, of atrocity, uh, you know, there were people that were starving and you couldn't trust that, you know, if you told someone who you really were, they might go and, you know, tell the authorities who you really were in exchange for food. Um, because, you know, we're talking about survival mode for people. So for my mother, it was, it was uh, deception to, to avoid being recognized or uh, identified as being a member of, of her family, which her father was a provincial governor and they were, you know, so they, they were politically connected and they also had wealth. Um, and it was the same with my father. Uh, so by them ending up in the same labor camp, um, you know, one of the things that helped fuel the, uh, kind of um, aid in that deception was, was the fact that, you know, my father marries my mother and now she's, you know, she can kind of hide under another layer uh, of a different identity as being, you know, not who she was before, but now just as- Different, as, different you know, last name. So different last name. they were married before everything happened um they got married sort of during uh during the uh during this time which is known as the killing fields so they you know and, and again when we say they were married i mean it was not like there was a ceremony or anything it was just you know you would tell the the local authorities okay this is my wife right and um and you know there's no records so they just take it as is got it so she had used her maiden name she would have right that wouldn't have gone well. Yeah, absolutely. So your parents are well, okay. So then they get married during that time, and what did it? So they end up. How they end up in the same labor? They kept a married couple. Did I would assume they separated a lot of people just by luck? They end up in the same labor camp. Yeah. So before you know, before they you know ended up um, together, you know, married together, they were they were just in the same labor camp. Oh, okay. Um, they, they didn't know each other before. They did. So they did not know each other before. They ended so up. So they met in the labor camp? Correct. They were assigned, I guess, to the same work group. So she makes it. Th so this is after her whole family was killed. Yes. 
how, 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 why did she not get killed? So she, so when, when she's, uh, you know, she's made this, you know, escape, um, in, you know, um, from the execution that, that of course happened to the rest of her family, uh, she's able to sneak out, uh, with, at the time she has, now she has a daughter at the time, um, which is from a previous marriage. Right. Okay. Um, and, and that the father of her daughter, my older stepsister, you know, he's already passed away and, um, he, she's able to escape with her sister and her daughter. And, you know, because essentially what you're dealing with are, you know, this group of radicals that they're not a very, you know, it's not a very educated, uh, you know, force. It's, it's people that are disenfranchised for various reasons and they're just taking commands from someone higher up. So when you walk into a labor camp and you make up a false name, nobody knows that it's not unless someone recognizes you and can turn you in. So she's going by a false name at the time. Um, you know, her, her mother's maiden name and, you know, same with her sister and she's traveling with a young child. So they're not able to, for whatever reason, you know, whatever, um, I, whatever you want to call it, luck, uh, you know, uh, stars aligning, she's able to, you know, to avoid, you know, being, uh, identified. And so how that's long how, of a, how, how long of a pro that's, that, that's unbelievable. How long of a process was that from, um, from everything then coming in and just pushing everybody out to making it to that labor camp? Is this a one week, a one month, uh, everyone's killed. She ends up in this labor camp. Your dad ends up in that labor camp. How long of, was that between getting arriving to the labor camp? How did that work? You know, that's a, it's a very, for all intents and purposes, it's a very fast process, right? So the war ends um, officially. The Khmer Rouge have, have defeated the, you know, the, the um, democratic government and they start marching, the Khmer Rouge march on the capital city um, and all the major cities. And as soon as they arrive, it's pretty much, all right, everyone get out you know, at gunpoint, um, they're forcing everybody out. And there's scenes like you'll see from some of the movies that are, that have been made, like the killing fields is one. Um, there's a, there's a few others that have come out in recent years, but there's scenes where you see everyone being forced out of the cities, right? Just mass exodus. And, you know, this total process is probably a couple months uh, when you're talking about it, because it's not pack your things. It's, it's just grab what you can that you think you'll need to survive. And of course, at this time, nobody really knows what's going on. They just know they're being told to leave the city. So some people are bringing everything and some people are bringing just what they think is, you know, the, the bare necessity. So it's, it's over a matter of probably a couple of months that you're, you're emptying out cities of millions and millions of people. So, um, you know, by all, by all accounts, you think about, you know, today when you go to your, you know, if you go to a, a, a sporting event or a music concert and you think about oh, how long does it take to get through this line? Now imagine, you know, on a scale of taking a, a, a city, you know, of, of millions of people and emptying it in, you know, a matter of, of weeks. So probably a couple months at most, you know, to empty everyone out into the countryside. All right. So they, they're living a free society, a great life. Um, and then this faction comes to power um and then they they just push everybody out and life changes they end up in a labor camp so and your mom meets your dad in the labor camp mm -hmm. so how long were they in in the labor they were slaves i mean and I, I the one thing i read about your your dad was like it comes to a point where all you think about is is how can i get food i all he yeah. thought about was was eating because they were literally people were dying from starvation. They were dying from disease. Um, and not to mention they were dying just because they were being executed uh, right. for, for looking at somebody the wrong way or, or, or whatever things that are, it's not comprehensible what happened. That's why it's, it's just, it's not imaginable to anyone, any human could think of treating humans this way, but it happened. And that's why I think it's important to talk about it. And I think the story, uh, the inspirational part is that your parents made it. Uh, but but let's let's continue the story. So how did they? 
how long were they in, how long were they slaves? How long were they in labor camp? So they're in labor camps for a couple of years um, before they were able to, to make it out. Um, so if you can picture uh, not even being, you know, in the 1% here in America, just being an, an average middle-class family um, and then losing everything you have, probably being separated, because that's what happened to a lot of families. Um, and that's the sort of the downstream effects for for the culture of Cambodia and, and, and the society is that we've all, you know, com families were separated. So, you know, you don't know who's still alive, who's not, where they are, um, you know, and then you go from probably what our biggest issue is today, right? As we're all, you know, we all work from home and dealing with the pandemic is, you know, is the Wi-Fi gonna hold out, right? So we can continue to do our work. Well, now you're worried about, are you gonna eat? And that's something that, Many, most of us, you know, in the United States will never experience, um, you know, but that, yeah, that's something that um, comes crashing down as a stark reality for them. So two years in the, in the labor camp, the things that they must have witnessed, um, also not really conceivable, how you get by that. I know in the article, your parents have since passed. We'll talk about but, but about their lives uh, in America in a little bit too. Um, but the nightmares, the things that just just the uh, not just the the physical torture they endured, but the mental mm -hmm. uh, things that they saw, um, not comprehensible. But two years in there, um, and then so the. Khmer Rouge, they get knocked out, right? The, the North mm -hmm. Vietnamese come in and, and take care of them, yep. which is the greatest thing either, right? But it's better than, so what happens? What, what happens there? Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the politics of the region come into play there where, you know, the, the Khmer Rouge, uh, you know, is a communist government. Um, at this, now, now this is the, this is just one country, Vietnam, after the war, right? They've unified, but they are also communist. Um, but it, it's to the point where the two sides aren't seeing eye to eye anymore. So the, the Vietnamese make their push, um, you know, and they, they do drive the Khmer Rouge, uh, you know, out. Um, you know, of course, there's still factional fighting, things like that. So now it's another war between the North Vietnamese uh, well, you know, the Vietnamese and the, you know, and the Khmer Rouge. Um, and that continues for, for many, many years, but that causes enough instability, which allows my parents the opportunity to make their move, which is to, you know, to make a break for, um, you know, uh, the border with Thai, uh, Thailand. Well, the, but, and the Vietnamese said, you guys can go back to your homes now. And your parents were, were like, that's probably not a good idea. Number one, there's nothing there. And they didn't trust the communists. I mean, we, 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 I know you had, had saw the podcast we had with, with Stephen Trong, a refugee mm -hmm. from, from Vietnam, his parents, and they, they took their family. They escaped. Uh, in fact, they were the last plane out of Vietnam. But I think your parents, if, if I have it right from, from, from reading that story, they're like, yeah, no, let's get out. Let's figure out a way out of this whole thing and start all over. Hopefully if they can make it, it wasn't easy. Then right. they ran into more trouble. Can do you, do you, can you take us to, so they tried, they went for Thailand, but that wasn't, things didn't work out so great. In that yeah. Situation. You know, when you think about this escape, right, it's not the, you know, it, it, it's escape by foot. So you're, you're working, you know, in these labor camps during the day. Um, and your only time to try to escape is at night. So, and as I said, you know, these, you know, these guards or, you know, groups that are sort of monitoring these and overseeing these labor camps, you know, they don't have records or things like that. So you can show up the next day in another camp, um, you know, and no one's really questioning, like, where did you come from? Um, you know, so that's how they're doing it. They're kind of, you know, hopping from camp to camp to make their way to the border. Um, you know, and traveling at night. And so that was, you know, of course, difficult. Um, the terrain of Cambodia is, is, is you know, tropical. So uh, you, you know, you have a lot of, uh, you know, forest, rainforest, things like that you have to go through. Um, 
certainly all the dangers of, of you know, the wilderness um, and certainly not being prepared for it, right? You see, you know, people going on expeditions, but they have tons of gear. I mean, you just have, you know, the clothes on your back. Um, so they're trying to make their way there. And of course, there's, you know, always the fear of being caught because there are patrols, um, you know, out at night, um, you know, and, and of course, you know, anyone that is in a position, uh, you know, when they're, when you're starving, when you're desperate, uh, they find out and they think they can maybe get some more food. They might tell, you know, their local, uh, you know, their local authorities that, you know, these people have escaped and, you know, and then that's it. So a very perilous uh, time through the jungle, but uh, also a little bit more difficult for my mother because she was pregnant with me at the time. So that, <laughs> you know, uh, is probably something that most, I, I think people that would listen or watch this podcast, um, if any of them have ever carried a child, now probably are thinking to themselves, holy cow, like doing that through all this is, is pretty incredible. There was one point, I don't know where they were at the time I read in the article, I think it was your dad was saying they were, they knew they were about to die. They thought for sure, this is it. Cause they're on like a cliff or something. And, and people it was one of those situations where somebody turned somebody in and they were just in a, and somehow they, there, yeah, they it made it through. Yeah, there was one time, um, I think was in the article, and I know my parents had, had shared with me, was uh, they had made it to the border, but they were turned away. Yep. And so they were turned away at the border. Um, and and that's how it was back then. It was, you know, all of these refugee groups are are just trying to cross every day. And of course, you know, the, the Red Cross is there and, and the aid groups in Thailand, and they're they're you know, taking in whoever they can, but of course there's a limit. And so every day there's, there's refugees that make it and there's also ones that are turned away and you just kind of keep trying until it, you know, until it's your turn um, to get in. So they're turned away at one point and they were all put on a truck, I guess, and, and driven a few miles back um, and then ordered, uh, and the story I've been told is they were, you know, ordered at gunpoint, everyone get out, you know, and, and go back. And um, my father recounted the story about how uh, they, they start walking and um, it wasn't too long after they, you know, they weren't too far away from the trucks when uh, the first landmine went off. Oh, and that's right. I read that. So yeah. they had been dropped, uh, you know, in this area where they're and, and Cambodia is one of the most heavily uh, mined countries in the world, you know, and, and certainly like you hear about Afghanistan, um, you know, in countries like that, and Cambodia is up there too. You know, there's a, there's just landmines um, are, are very prolific in, in in Cambodia. So they, you know, they um, they have to march through this land, this this minefield. And my mother was pregnant with me at the time, so it's my father, um, his niece, my mother who's pregnant with me, um, her daughter at the time, right? Um, my older sister and, you know, and we're marching across this minefield. And it's one of those things like somehow nobody in my family stepped on a mine. Um, you know, um, don't know how. Yeah. I read, I read where your father was saying it's about a five minute walk, but took about five or six hours. Right. It was like he would lead the way. Right. And, and you try to walk in the footsteps of, of, yeah, the person in front of you so that you know that it's, that it's safe. And it's, um, you know, it's one of those things that I don't think anybody could ever comprehend until you've gone through it. I mean, I've tried to, to imagine it in my, for myself, and I just can't imagine uh, knowing that every step could be the last one. So somehow they make it through there. So how did they end up as refugees in the United States? How did they end up in Buffalo? So when they finally did make it to the camp, uh, my father was educated. Um, he had a college degree, so he spoke French and English. And because of his ability to speak English, he was very useful to 
the, you know, the, um, the aid groups that ran the camps. He could communicate with the workers and he could translate, you know, and communicate with uh, the other refugees. So he was put in charge of a lot of tasks or tasks around the camp and he got to know, uh, you know, some of these, these, these director level people very well. And uh, because of that, um, we were fortunate that they were able to secure, you know, the ability for, you know, my family to leave. Um, and how we ended up in Buffalo. So my father was told um, by one of the directors of this camp, um, he said, you know what? I, uh, I was able to secure two spots. You have to choose. Uh, one is in the United States and one is in New Zealand. Uh, so my father picks the United States, uh, but at the time he didn't know it was Buffalo. So, and of course, even if they told him, he wouldn't have known, right. you know, what's Buffalo, New York, yeah, right? right. Um, so, you know, we, we're getting ready and everything and, and sort of, it's one of these things like, you don't, he's not asking a lot of questions, right? My father's not like, well, where in the United States are you going to send us? Like, he's like, listen, anywhere but here is, is, you know, is going to be, yeah. is going to be, uh, you know, the way my family is going to survive. So, um, as I guess they're getting closer to the departure date, you know, because you have to fill out, I think, and I think that highlights something that is interesting that a lot of people don't realize about the refugee experience. My family came to the United States already in debt because you have to fill out forms where basically it's promissory notes. So the United States purchased airline tickets for all of us to come to the United States but it's a promissory note. My father signing it saying, I will pay back the United States government in the amount of, and I believe at the time it was like 3000 US dollars, um, you know, for the cost of these flights. So, um, you know, as the, the paperwork is being done uh, to, to get everything in order, uh, he's told, you know, this, this opportunity to go to the United States is through a sponsorship with a church um, in Buffalo, New York. Right. And that's the first he's hearing about Buffalo, New York. So we were sponsored by a church here in Buffalo, um, Evangel Assembly of God. Um, and that's how, you know, that's how that all got started. So they end up in Buffalo. You grew up in Williamsville or Amherst? Amherst? Grew up in Amherst and then um, moved to Williamsville, um, you know, when I was probably about 10 years old. So they start over and they're successful. I mean, it's crazy. It's like what, 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 what? So I want to get to. One, I want to talk about humanity and it's, you know what? Let's get right to humanity and I want to talk about what they did. How did, did they talk to you about their belief in 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 human beings? I mean, I would think a lot of people would be that have gone through what they what what your parents went through would not believe in human. Is there humanity? I mean, what did they talk about? You know, my parents were always people that, despite everything they went through, always believed in the good in people. Um, I think a lot of that was fueled by the fact, number one, um, I think just from a cultural perspective, um, you know, people who visit Cambodia and travel to Cambodia will often come away saying that they, they feel like, in general, um, the culture is a friendly one. So I think that's kind of the, the, the base level of it. And I think you'll find that um, for most of the Southeast Asian countries, a lot of people say, you know, in general, the people are very, uh, you know, very amicable. And then, you know, they come to the United States, um, sponsored by a church. And, you know, so we spend time attending church. My parents converted um, from Buddhism to Christianity. So, you know, there was a lot, obviously, uh, of, the, of the Christian teachings for, um, you know, the good in humanity um, and the good that you can do as a, as a um, member of, of this, you know, of, of a society. So I think that's, that had a lot to do with it. Um, but, you know, there were also other um, examples my father gave me and, and, and examples I experienced with my mother that just showed the humanity that despite everything, right, despite losing everything, despite losing their loved ones, they still were, you know, it, it, it somehow, and I don't know how, to be honest with you, I don't know how they didn't walk away jaded. I don't know how they didn't walk away 
not trusting anyone ever again. Um, but they did. I mean, my father, uh, he told the story of when we first came to this country, we were sponsored by the church. And, you know, my father, and, and, you know, proudly, my father will say he was never, even from, from the time he arrived here, my father never was on any government, you know, welfare program or benefits or anything. Um, it was always, you know, self-sufficiency, have to be able to do this for yourself. Um, and he told me the story about how the, like, the arrangement with the church was that like every week he was supposed to get some sort of, uh, you know, um, like a $25, you know, allowance or something, you know, the church would give to the family, you know, for, for basic needs or whatever. And I guess whoever it was at the church didn't always remember to give him the money. And I was like, well, dad, did you like, did you ever like <laughs> call him and say, Hey, you know, I, I need this for my family. And he said, no, no, no. He's just, that's just not me. I would never like, you know, if they gave it to me, great. If they didn't, then, you know, we found another way. Um, you know, and my, my mom was the same way. My mom was extremely, you know, um, she was a giving person, a loving person. Um, I tell, I told the story actually, um, at, at her funeral, I told the story about how when we were, when I was very young, I used to take the bus with her downtown. Um, we did, she did a lot of, my parents did a lot of work with the refugee um, aid organizations here in Buffalo, like Journey's End and um, Catholic Charities, things like that. So I used to take the bus with my mom a lot downtown. And there was one time when we were getting on the bus and there was a man standing um, at the bus stop and he was asking for money. Um, and we got on the bus and then my mom got up and then she asked the driver to wait. She went outside and she, she gave a couple bucks to the guy at the, at the bus stop. And she came back on and I was like, you know, I was probably, I don't know, eight, you know, eight years old at the time, maybe, maybe a little younger. I was like, mom, why did you give that man, you know, our money? Like knowing as a child, like knowing we don't have a lot. And she said, and I remember, I still remember her words. She said, you know what? there'll always be another dollar, but we'll never have, we may never have another chance to help that man. So, you know, that's just who my parents were. Um, you know, and again, despite everything, I, I don't know how they were able to, to not walk away with it feeling like, you know, humanity was, was, was something that uh, they had lost faith in. Oh, it just says, ah, what special people, they were to be to go through what they went through and um still believe as you said that there is good in people i mean i mean they've watched a lot of people get murdered they went through things that are not imaginable mm -hmm. and then to come on i guess you know they were extremely appreciative that there were actually people to help them they, they help them get to America, help them save their own, you know, have, have a life for you, you know, have mm -hmm. a life for, for their children, uh, not just themselves. Um, so I suppose that's what led them to, but to believe in humanity, but it's gotta be, they, they just have to be special people to be able to come out of that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what did they do when they got here? What were, you know, they, they had to, you said your dad was self-sustainable. What, what did they do? So my dad was, uh, as I mentioned before, he was college educated. He had a degree in hotel and restaurant management. Um, he actually did spend um, time during his studies um, as a foreign exchange student in Canada. So, you know, he, he comes from this background of, of service and hospitality, but when the Khmer Rouge took over and just, you know, kind of destroyed that infrastructure. Now you're a college graduate with no way to verify you actually have a college degree. So, you know, he's he, at that point, he's thinking, okay, again, he's still in survival mode of how do I, how do I make a life for my family here? Um, so he, he gets a job at a local uh, machinery company and, you know, sort of this thing where he starts, he's, he starts out working there, you know, sweeping the floors and eventually um, gets to know the owner pretty well. And the owner's like, you know what, we're going to, um, we're going to help you get, uh, you know, trained and certified as a, as a machinist tool and die maker. So um, 
that's what he ends up doing for, you know, for his life here, you know, in Buffalo and in the United States. Um, my mom, because again, she came from a, a educated and wealthy background, um, had some, you know, more opportunities in her life previously. So, you know, for a time she was um, a flight attendant in Cambodia. And so she spoke, um, you know, French, English, and Cambodian. And so, you know, she's able to use that when she comes here to the United States, um, you know, working with these refugee communities, um, helping to translate and things like that. Um, and then eventually she gets a job as a teacher's aide in the Buffalo school system because the Buffalo schools um, have a very large um, ESL program. So she goes to work as, um, you know, Bennett, um, you know, Grover and, and helping out around there until she finally kind of lands a permanent spot at School 45, which today, you know, I, I believe is still known as the International School, um, where a lot of the, the refugees um, today, you know, from Burma, Somalia, you know, et cetera, are, are those children go to school there. So that's sort of her legacy is she spent a lot of time as a teacher's aide there um, at School 45. Um, and that's, so that's how the two of them, you know, you know, went to work and, and created a life for, uh, for all of us. It is just a, uh, an amazing story. That's where I say it's inspirational. Their, their persistence, their, their will to live and their will to provide for their family. Um, you know, that there's, it's, it's, um, the ultimate, right? So mm -hmm. they, um, they were in their probably their early thirties when they, when they, uh, got out of there and made it here. So they spent, you know, maybe 20, 25 years here. Mm -hmm. uh, but they both died young after all of that. Uh, they both die young. Your dad passes away at age 62 in Oh five. Um, mm -hmm. you know, he had, uh, liver cancer i believe yeah yep um, correct and then your mom at 57 uh from a heart condition back in 2010 but that's where you this is where your story uh you you get involved in this story too now uh, because of your mom passing at such an early age you're like you know you decided to get you should really have your heart checked you know yeah. And uh, they discover something and it is, and it's, it saved you from, yeah. from an untimely end. So why don't you tell us about, you're 41 now, yep. healthy, but tell us, tell us that situation. Yeah. So back in 2011, um, I'm diagnosed because of passing my mom. Uh, you know, I go and see a cardiologist who, you know, does the, we, we do the EKG and he says, you know, everything looks okay but you have this family history, uh, your mom was so young, I think you need to go see a specialist um, and specifically an electrophysiologist. So electrophysiologists are uh, physicians who specialize in um, the rhythms and pacing of, of the heart um, and you know, diseases related to that. So I go and see a local uh, electrophysiologist here who does another EKG, but slightly differently. And, and then I'm informed, you know what, we're suspicious that you have this condition um, known as Brugada syndrome, a uh, pretty rare condition. Um, but for Brugada, the thing is, is that most people don't discover it until it's too late. Uh, most people that have Brugada, um, they have the one, the one event, uh, the one major cardiac event, and that's usually the event that, that kills them. So I, you know, I, I catch it before anything can happen. And then they tell me, okay, you're going to, you're going to need um, an implantable cardiac defibrillator. Now, you know, at the time I'm 30 years old and I'm thinking to myself, there's got to be something else, right? Got to be drugs, got to be something, some other therapy for this. And, you know, my doctor's like, no, this is really, this is what we have at the right now. You know, this, uh, you know, this disease that you have is only about 20 years old and in medical in a medical timeline, that's not very long for, um, for them to know what it is and how to treat it. So, you know, this is what we have, this is the option for you. So, you know, I go in, I get this, um, I have this in, implanted cardiac defibrillator now and, you know, and, and you can't really walk away from something like that without stopping and saying, okay, this is a life changing moment for me. Um, 
how am I going to live going forward? How am I going to make sure that, you know, I take advantage of this and that this is, you know, that, that my mother passing away wasn't for nothing. So um, that's when I decided to start steering my, myself personally and professionally towards uh, medical devices. And, and, you know, because knowing that, that this one is going to save my life uh, and how, you know, this is going to make sure that I'll, you know, be able to, you know, see my kids grow up and, you know, and enjoy all of those things. So you get into interesting, you know, your health condition, which you discover because of your, your mother's unfortunate early death. Uh, so now you just recently, and you're a father of three, mm-hmm. and, now, and so now you recently um, hook up with a, a company, uh, Medtronic, which is, um, they deal medical devices, but specifically you're working with cardiac rhythm heart failure division. Uh, mm-hmm. I know it's you're early on in this particular point of your career here. Um, but how cool is that? that that's pretty cool. That that's uh, directly affects you. And yet you're, you're going to be involved in it now. Yeah. And it's, it's really a, a story of a very serendipitous story, if you will. Um, even before this, this new adventure I'm going on um, in, in clinical sales is hooking up and working alongside a company that a lot of Buffalonians will remember, which is Great Batch Medical, um, which is now uh, integer, but, you know, Great Batch being very, you know, famous in Western New York for being, you know, uh, the product of Wilson Great Batch, um, you know, who developed the first implantable pacemaker. So, you know, going and working alongside those incredible people there and, and, you know, and then eventually going and working for them. Um, so working with them as a vendor, but then going and working with them as, as a direct associate and really seeing the things that they do there. Right. So they make the components for devices like mine. Uh, they make batteries and capacitors and leads and guide wires and all kinds of, um, of these uh, components that, you know, are then sold under the retail brands, Medtronic, Boston Scientific, you know, Abbott, et cetera. Um, so that's, you know, where I have this, you know, unique insight into, you know, I see what goes on to make these devices. I see the people that, you know, have dedicated their careers to, to developing and making these devices to, to make the lives of patients like myself, you know, that much better. Um, you know, and it's, it's a really incredible thing to think about, you know, cause most of us will never, will never see where anything we buy or purchase is made. Um, you know, so specifically for me, I, I, I've been able to see, you know, where my battery was made. Um, you know, and that's a, that's a really special moment for you when you see that and you realize like, I'm, I'm standing at the station where the battery that is one day going to, you know, save my life was made. Um, it really is surreal. It's one of those things where you try to, you really try to make sure that you, you take it all in and you appreciate it for what it is because you're in a very, very special position. I think you also have, you know, I can't speak for you, but maybe you have, you know, you look at this as, wow, this is so cool. I get to, you know, I have, I feel much more comfortable with this because someday I'm going to need it. I don't know when it is, but it's going to save me when it happens. And that would give anyone a different look at life and appreciation for life. But I think, I also think a lot of people would be, would, would have a different look at that. Would would be like, this sucks for me. Why do I have to have this? And my gosh, this is, you know, I don't know what's, it would be a negative look, but I'm wondering if you, you have more, you, you're more positive about things just because of who brought you up and who brought you into this world are two people that witnessed and lived in hell mm-hmm. and made it through and were positive. Right. It's got to rub off on you. It absolutely does. And you can't, you can't go through that and grow up in, in, in a family like mine and grow up to become unappreciative of, of, you know, everything that you have, um, every opportunity you've been given, uh, you know, to, 
to have a life and, and make a life that you choose. Um, it really is something that, you know, I, I, I have to say, like, I, I don't go through any day and, and feel like, you know, I, even the bad days, you know, here could, could never compare to what I know my parents went through. So, you know, we all have our bad days um, at work or personally. And, you know, at those times you may feel like things are, things are really bad, but, you know, you, you really do come away um, for my situation, you come away with this, this idea that, you know, you catch yourself, you allow yourself that time to kind of to, to grieve or to be angry or whatever it is. Um, Cause you don't want to deny yourself that, but you quickly, you know, I quickly, you know, pivot and, and focus back on getting back on track because um, just knowing what everything my parents had gone through that, you know, uh, whatever it is I'm going through right now just doesn't compare. It's a great perspective. Can you tell me, I don't know if you know the answer to this, uh, or maybe it's just from your personal, you know, there's a, obviously there's a lot of going on this time of this recording, September of 2020, we've got COVID, we've got a, uh, and uh, some racial unrest in America, we've got an interesting election, certainly uh, uh, coming up. I'm trying to think out positions, there's a lot of, you know, what, what did your parents think of the United States of America? They definitely always believed that it was exactly what was what it was sold as that there are opportunities for everyone um it might not always be exactly what you want you know uh at the time but there's always an opportunity and really i think what my my father always instilled in me is that you have to take advantage of the opportunities that are presented for you and sort of make your own luck if you will um but, but the United States is still that place that anybody can, as long as you have the right mindset and the right, um, you know, you have the ability and you have the hustle, you can make it into whatever you want. It's, it's really, it, it truly is up to you. And, you know, for my parents, I think they looked at it as they weren't given the opportunity, like for my father, he was college educated, which was very rare for Cambodia because it's a third world country. So when you talk about people who are educated in places like that, they're the top of the class, they work very hard. Um, and it's a, and it's a big deal, you know, whereas, you know, in the United States, I think a lot of people don't appreciate that you have the opportunity to go to school. You know, you could be the C student and you're still going to college. Um, you know, for my father, he had to be the top of the class for most of his life just to be able to go. And, and we're not even he's not a doctor, right? He went to school for hotel and restaurant management, um, which is what he wanted to do. But in order to do that, he had to be at the top of the class. And, you know, and then he's raising children here and seeing like, wow, like, you know, I didn't graduate at the top of my class, but I still had every opportunity. Um, and so to them, that was still a, a really amazing thing. Um, and they were very grateful for it, that, you know, that, that the opportunities existed for, for their children. Um, certainly there are things that they want, would have wanted to turn out differently in life, but they also knew that, you know, it wasn't, um, it's not always up to you. You know, my father was a man of great faith. Um, and, you know, ever, you know, when he converted to Christianity, I mean, he really, it really, you know, drove a lot of what he did every day in his mindset. Um, so there was never, they didn't, they never looked at it as, well, you know, it's not as great as we thought it would be or what we had, you know, grown up hearing about it. I mean, they were always all in on America. Yeah, I think a lot of times, you know, we just forget, um, how fortunate we are to be in this country. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not perfect. It's got a lot of issues, right? Sure. Every society, every country, we, we all do. But um, I think a lot of times we just forget that. And, and stories like your parents uh, and yours uh, help us to say, you know what, you know, we, we got to, we can all work together. We always have for over 200 years, get through any situation. This is a great place to be. 
uh, let's make the best of it. And to a great point is you have to uh, take advantage of opportunity. That's certainly what your parents did, you're doing. Um, you know, I appreciate it. I appreciate you giving us this time, Lang. Um, went way over the time that I told you it would take to, to do it, but such an interesting and inspiring and yet at the same time sad story. Um, three kids, you're in Buffalo, um, healthy, good for you. Uh, I wish you luck in everything. I hope you and I can, can stay connected, stay in touch. Um, and I wish you luck in, in, in everything, you and your family. I appreciate that, Steve. And I really want to say I, I'm, I'm honored that you've asked me to, to speak and be a part of this because I think what you are doing there, um, you know, and, and highlighting the fact that it's, it's, it's all about people is something that we, we should never lose, um, you know, as, as a society. It is all about people and it's about our stories and that's how we connect with one another. Um, so that's, you know, that's something that I really appreciate that you're doing. Well, thank you, Lang. Um, you're right on. People connect with people. And even in the business world, we are a, uh, we're a marketing company. And, we, and what we've come to realize is, you know, people talk about branding and building brands. And that's so true. Mm. In small businesses, people don't connect with the business. They connect with the people behind the business because that's what humans do when we all do it through right. storytelling. So thanks for recognizing that. Again, thanks for the time. Thank you for sharing your parents' story and your story. Uh, that's Lang Ung. Thanks again uh, for, for helping us out. Uh, you can um, listen to, uh, you can watch any of our podcasts by visiting our, our website, uh, sidewalk, uh, com. Uh, if you have a story that you think needs to be shared or you know somebody um, that has a story that should be shared, something whether it's inspirational, educational, informational, whatever it is, um, fill out a little form on the website. We'll contact you and, and we'll help share your story. So thanks again to Lang Ung for sharing his story and his parents' amazing story. Thank you for participating. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. This has been Sidewalk Talk. I'm Steve Fortunato.